It's me, Mackin. I'm sending you all my love, wherever it is that you are. It's been a minute since I've put out a podcast, but I wanted to check in, say hello. <clears throat> uh, it's been a wild month, year, um, etc. And, uh, like most people in the, um, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd by the police, I've been taking some time to really contemplate the systemic injustices in our country and our world history of anti-blackness and uh, violence against black people in this country and, and how whiteness and white supremacy show up in myself uh, in ways that I want to change and also thinking about <clears throat> the conversations that we've been having about what is the role of police in society. Is there one? Uh, and, and what steps can we do to have a productive conversation around dismantling systems of oppression and understanding them? Anyways, this show is not the news. And I am not an authority on anything. Uh, just a guy uh, thinking about stuff and feeling stuff. And the intention of this show has always been just that, just to kind of explore some thoughts and feelings. And uh, I want to do that here because it's been helpful for me to kind of on my anti-racist journey, it's been helpful for me to talk things out with people, um, particularly other white people, because one thing that is being uh, rightfully reiterated a lot recently is that it's like we shouldn't be putting that burden on people of color, you know, BIPOC, to unpack our whiteness with us. That's the labor. You know, and expecting labor for free, demanding it, feeling the right to that labor is the issue. And it's something that we've been doing as white people for centuries. So let's let's look at that, you know. So I've been thinking, you know, like, what can I say on this podcast? You know, I, I uh, actually recorded this. Many times, on many different days, one night I, I did like five or six versions of it, <clears throat> and it didn't feel right. It felt, 
I would just I was processing stuff and then also just reading more articles and think pieces and a couple books and my thoughts are evolving and changing so rapidly that part of me is afraid of documenting how I'm thinking because I am sure it it will change. Um, but also, I have found other people kind of sharing their thought journeys, I guess, helpful in order for me to process stuff. So that's, I guess, my goal here. And also, a big lesson of the moment for me and for a lot of people is that saying nothing because you're afraid of not doing it perfectly can be harmful because you're essentially saying you're okay with the status quo if you're not saying anything. And there's a degree of complicity there that we haven't really been acknowledging as white people. And so that's my goal of this next chunk of time is just to check in on that subject because it's important um, and it's ever evolving and I don't expect anything I say to be uh, you know I expect the things that I'm learning I want to just kind of share them as I go but I don't want to just parade my ignorance around so I uh, yeah that's that's where I'm at with it <laughs> um so I do just want to talk about like whiteness and allyship for a second. Um, and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable, but it pales in comparison to the horror and pain of experiencing racism every day. And also generationally, systemically, Individually, all of that stuff. And so that's the work we're being called to do, is to sit in that discomfort. And I think one of the biggest revelations for me in this last month has been just unpacking and understanding how, like, my, as a white liberal, how I have been part of the problem and just kind of my internalized white supremacy and uh, racism and shit that's like ugly and you know and I think you know it's a journey it's a process but I've definitely been couple things like being spelled out for me recently are like the good bad binary and I think a lot of times we like as white people think of as white liberals we think of the racists as over there you know in the south and they're dumb and they're bad or 
oh, look at the president. He's the racist. Not me. Racists are only bad people, only malicious, intentionally cruel people. And if I can just kind of identify that, then I don't have to do any work internally on myself. And I don't have to acknowledge my role in things. Um, yeah, so I guess, I guess a lot of the work for us, for white people is unpacking that and seeing the ways in which we stop that conversation within ourselves. Because we don't like to talk about race. But that upholds white supremacy, which is that was like that's been a crazy thing for me to to unpack and to learn. Um, yeah, what has been helpful for me in terms of uh, so, yeah. There, how has this unfolded in my life in terms of uh, just this last month? I went to some protests a month ago. Um, and I was just thinking about the role of protests and why we want to go to protests. And obviously this is all happening in, to, uh, in the context of the pandemic, you know? Um, and I've been like, you know, quarantining pretty, uh, pretty intensely, I'd say. Um, so like being called to go to the protests and like that seemed to be in conflict, like go to, go to, go to this protest because your neighbors are being killed, you know? But also this other civic duty of, and my friend Ren named this of, for me, of just like these two civic duties being in, in conflict somewhat. Um, and also like, also stay at home for your neighbors. Uh, so reconciling, like wanting to participate and demonstrate and the urgency of fighting racism you know and police violence and protesting that and organizing and all that stuff anyways went to some protests went to a couple of them los angeles and a lot of thoughts a lot of feelings um and it made me feel it felt really good in so many ways to to go into just feel connected to Los Angeles and people in my city and just to stand beside people of color in my city. Um, and hear speakers and 
just kind of be a small part in like holding that space and, and bearing witness to that. And it's really powerful. Um, also, it's just really wild to see that as it was playing out against how protests were being characterized by the news and stuff. Um, and being there and seeing on the news being like, LA riots descend into violence and stuff. And just being there and being like, it wasn't like that. I wasn't at all the protests, but I was at a few of them. And most people were wearing masks and it was really peaceful. And the cops are fucking instigating a lot of the violence and that part of the narrative. How, why is that missing? You know, how come when white people protest, white people shit, the cops aren't, you know, inciting violence. So, um, and also sometimes taking direct action and breaking the rules is how you fucking get shit done. That's how, that's how Stonewall happened, you know, which in many ways was like a really important, uh, kickstarting event in, uh, LGBTQ history. And it was, you know, Marsha P. Johnson and I don't want to get into the whole history of Stonewall mainly because I need to be more educated about it, but it was a, I know Marsha P. Johnson was a black trans woman and uh it was a fucking riot and uh sometimes you know if you have no other options i mean how else are you gonna get people's attention and so i do think that there is a case for like yeah if you're killing people that look like me I'm going to fucking break a window if you're not listening to me, you know? So I'm with that. <sighs> anyway, so that was kind of the conversation at the time was just like uh, these protests were being characterized as violence, often mischaracterized, but also like even if there were some protesters uh, breaking windows, I, th I think that it's justified. Um, that's how I feel personally. Um, it's just interesting, like, seeing that be the line for so many people, uh, so many white people in my family and, and just, like, people that I know and just seeing that tension play out. Um, yeah, so much of this is just, like, examining our blind spots. Even as, even as I'm speaking out loud, I'm realizing, like, oh, I need to know more about who else was at Stonewall and how that uh, unfolded. Anyways. What happened next? I started to, you know, there's like a lot of resources on social media being shared and a lot of like organizing that was happening on there that was like effective and important. And I was like, oh, wait, shit, like Instagram stories is giving me more relevant information right now than the New York Times. Um, that's crazy. That's cool. Who knew Instagram was going to be like be this effective and important in terms of, uh, in my opinion of, yeah, organizing and sharing resources. Um, and then there was kind of a wave of 
contemplating like, okay, what, what is helpful in this, in this arena and what is performative and what is like, Hey, look at me, you know, I guess just performative allyship. Like, check me out. This is trendy or whatever. And not doing the work. And how much of it is like, okay, yeah, like you should speak up on there and then also do the work, you know? And so obviously we've seen a lot of, I guess I've seen a lot of like good and bad examples of that in my feed. And I definitely have to fight that in myself because I think that there's, yeah, the performative shit definitely is an urge for me and just in terms of like, cool, you don't have any more work to do. Like, you're done. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's like, it's got, that doesn't have anything to do with it. You know, it's like the, the ego doesn't have anything to do with it. Like, it's a lot, a lot of the work is internal and offline, obviously. But also struggling with like, but I fucking, I feel like this list is important to share or whatever. So, I mean, I guess calls to action and amplification of black voices and uh, activist voices are important and I feel like are still effective in that space. Um, anyways, and then I started to listen to some podcasts and like kind of uh, engage with some of the resources that were being recommended. And I read a book called White Fragility that everybody was recommending and reading. And I have since heard a lot of really valid critiques of not only that specific book, White Fragility, but also of the author, Robin D'Angelo. And just sort of, I guess, whiteness in the anti-racist uh, diversity training academic world and its potential problems. And so I originally, when I, I originally read White Fragility, and I was like, oh my God, everyone read this book. Shared that on my Instagram. Um, and then since then, I've like heard a lot of critiques of it. And uh, just a, a humbling reminder that, hey, this like, gotta keep engaging with this stuff. And uh, there's a lot of, oh shit, I was wrong about that. Or like, oh, I didn't have all the information. And here's what I've, here's what I'm, here's what I'm learning. And so... I just want to touch on what I've learned about that book and about reading that book. And uh, basically, I've seen a lot of, in, as far as these critiques, I, I'm specifically re referring to critiques from the left side by anti-racist educators and scholars of color. Um, those are the critiques I'm interested in. When I was looking for critiques, I found a lot of critiques on the right, you know which is just like white people being like kind of proving the, the book's point in a lot of ways being like, this is, this is bullshit. 
And I was like, I don't want those. I don't want conservative arguments on why we shouldn't, you know, engage in this subject. I want uh, BIPOC activist perspective on why how white people can trip up in this space and the problems of that. And uh, let me grab my phone because there was a couple of specific things that I was referred to that helped me unpack this. BRB. Okay, yeah, I have returned. Um, according to Weez on Instagram, W-E-E-Z-E, Louisa Duran, um, who's an anti-racist educator of color, uh, has a IGTV video that talks specifically about um, white fragility and Robin D'Angelo and... Uh, there was also a slate piece by Javel Tamayo about, oh wait, no, I'm sorry, that's the photograph used in the piece. The article is by Lauren Michelle Jackson in Slate, and the title of the article is called What's Missing from White Fragility? But also I see another title here that says White Fragility has a whiteness problem. Anyways, hopefully that's enough information for you to be able to find that. I'll link it in this episode description as well. But basically, I read Wife of Julia and I was like, oh shit, this is like a crash course and I'm, this is helpful for me. And I was like singing its praises. And then kind of what I've gathered from the critiques of it are, is, to words, am I right? <laughs> um is that the book is white-centered and it's kind of all about whiteness and it's written by a white person. And so we should be seeking to complexify our understanding of blackness and not not just whiteness um and also whiteness can't fully see outside of itself and so we need to look to BIPOC, anti-racist educators who have written extensively on the subject. And that's also another critique of the book is that there's very little reference to other contemporary educators of color on the issue. Um, and that Robin D'Angelo like essentially is profiting off of oppression and the lived experience of other BIPOC working in the field and her being able to like intellectualize racism uh, and charge a bunch of money at a workshop, especially in like the corporate, uh, you know, diversity training world that it's like a expensive ass thing, you know, and that, 
Robin D'Angelo keeps like saying yes to all of these. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know where that money's going. And like I was reading that in this late article, it says that, you know, some of the money's being donated or most of the money's being donated. Reinvest in the community. Anyways, but just all, all is to say that it's like, oh, like there are people of color doing this work and like they're more qualified because, uh, whiteness cannot be both the poison and the antidote. And so, and also I, I, there was a tweet I saw from a, um, I forget, I forget who wrote the tweet, but I'll, I'll link it in the thing as well. Um, cause it was like the thread will also went on to like, just recommend other literature. Uh, it was basically like, hey, it's okay if you read the book, just like, don't let it be the last. It's okay if it's the first book you read on the subject, don't let it be the last. Shut up phone. Um, excuse me. Anyways. So I'm trying not to let that book be the last book I read. Um, and the book I'm reading next is So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluo. And I will let you know what I think of that book once I've read it. Um, anyways, so that's kind of where my head has been at in the last couple of days, specifically unpacking that, that book and why, why it's an issue. Um, Anyways, I wonder if there's anything else that I wanted to offer. Um, yeah, other things I've engaged in that are are uh, just helping me just bring more black voices into my life. And whether it's following Brandon Kyle Goodman on Instagram. And uh, watching his really thoughtful IGTV videos on various subjects, but including allyship and how to be effective. At Brandon K. Good on Instagram. Uh, he's a writer and he also. Makes really, uh, really helpful anti-racist content on Instagram. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, something I read uh, shortly in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Um, and it's a, just a gorgeous piece of writing. And also, it's a really thorough and often brutal account of growing up black in America and also being father of a black son in America and navigating that. And the whole book is like addressed to his son. And it's a beautiful book and I'd highly recommend it. Um, so I think all of this kind of raises the question where it's just like, what is the role of white people in the conversation of anti-racism? Because 
one of the pitfalls is, like we were talking about earlier, putting, placing burdens, undeserved burdens on people of color. Um, and then asking people who are in serious grief and mourning right now and have been for centuries, hey, can you do the work for me? Hey, can you break this down for me? Like, hey, can you give me a reading list? Hey, 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 you know. And so in that sense, like, it seems that it's helpful for white people to break this shit down with each other. Uh, one of my friends, Megan, invited me to be part of an anti-racist book club. And we had our first meeting. And it's like white people and we're working on we're working some shit out together, you know. And then I think the pitfalls is like claiming to be an authority and taking uh you know oxygen away from uh people of color uh who are more of an authority on this subject. Um Yeah. So, anyways, that's kind of how I'm feeling about that stuff. Um, so I hope you're doing okay. I hope you're making time for this work um, and also taking care of yourself and pacing yourself and making sure that you're doing okay and... uh also, White People for Black Lives is a great organization uh, that works in conjunction and also takes direction from Black Lives Matter uh, and also works with showing up for racial justice and that those are just great groups in terms of like if you're trying to stay engaged and take action, uh, they have regular trainings and are kind of just calling people in on hey here's a here's a place where we can like organize activate uh have conversations that we don't need to be having with people of color and but we're also like so it's weird because it's like a white <laughs> it's like a white affiliate group you know and it's like isn't the white club the problem but it's like there is a degree to which we have to do that um and also just like seeing how our role is different um, but what I like about white people for black lives is that it is indirect communication with black lives matter and taking direction from that organization. So anyways, um, also, uh, made a donation to the black trans travel fund and, um, Black trans women are just murdered at a way higher rate than anyone else. And um, often because of their gender identity, they're pushed out of jobs and relegated to sex work. And it's unsafe for them to drive home. Or, or find travel homes. So basically the, the Black Trans Travel Fund is set up to 
provide black trans women with uh, cash so that they can call an Uber or call Lyft or find a, a safer way of uh, transportation home um, so that they are subject to less violence. Um, so that's kind of <clears throat> just like what I want to say on that. And I want to shift just into just kind of some more personal stuff, but I wanted to talk about that. I didn't want to drone on and on and just do my fucking processing, all my processing here. Um, and so I, d I'm not sure because I feel like every time, like the other times I've, I've recorded this, it's been f like for me, like oh, a day ago, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I don't know who this conversation, I can't imagine it's interesting or useful to a person of color. I would not expect it to be. This is, they know this, <laughs> they know, all the, they've known all of this and they've been shouting all of this for a really long time. And it's heartbreaking and confusing and astounding that all this information has been out there and we've just like not sought it out. And that's horrifying and embarrassing. Um, but also I think about my journey, um, on which I've got a long, long way to go and maybe we'll never be done, but it's still worth it and important to do as much work as you can of, uh, you know, unpacking your racist shit and doing the, the work as a white person. Um, just thinking about it, like how fucking long it's taken me and how many, like how many conversations I've had to have with myself, like started by other people or just like how, how patient the people of color in my life have been with me and just like saying dumbass shit. Um, and so that, that level of grace is, truly awe-inspiring um and deeply moving anyways so if you, whatever you're feeling right now um if you're feeling guilt if you're feeling overwhelmed process that so that you can get into action um and it feels it feels good to be in the solutions of things and to look out for pitfalls and to look out for complacency and all that shit because I think we're in the period now where the the marathon that people say, you know, like this has to be a marathon. This is this is long this is long work. This is we should be uncomfortable and we should be sustaining our efforts over long periods of time. So as a person who's feeling exhaustion in the moment seems pretty understandable uh it's a privilege to learn about racism and not have to experience it and uh yeah take a nap so you can so you can get up and uh keep fucking raging against the machine you know cool 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 um and if anybody has any feedback on anything that i've said that they feel like they want to share with me please do um i don't expect you to um i'm gonna be checking in on you know what i say but also trying not to just be silent
So I'm rewatching Lost. Hard pivot. <laughs> so I'm rewatching Lost, you guys, and it's fucking great. Um, I love that show. I had a podcast about that show. I probably mentioned it on this show because it was like 2007 or something when I got into the show and started the sh- podcast. Cause I, the first podcast I listened to was about lost. So it's very like nostalgic for me just cause I love podcasts and I love lost and those two things how were happening at the same time for me, like both me discovering them and also me trying to make them podcasts that is um and also like my perspective on the show as a kid and then watching it as an adult now and like relating to the characters differently and uh i remember as a kid being like just way into Locke and his shit and now as an adult i'm like i still really like Locke, but i'm i can totally see the frozen i'm just like Locke, what are you doing dude <laughs> And the show's kind of, it's interesting to look back on because it's so of its time, you know? Uh, and, and, like, the jeans and, like, the president is George W. Bush, you know? Um, and then 9-11 just happened. And, but also, like, Anyway, so there's there's stuff on on screen and and like dynamic things where I'm like, oh, I think this, this is pretty diverse for the time, you know. Still like a very white show, but I don't think I've seen like uh, complex Korean characters have you know like thorough storylines as starring roles in a in a drama. And, Anyways, so all that to say, I was, like, I was like, oh, shit, like, that's that's cool um, that the show is, like, on top of that. But it's also just, like, fucking insane. <laughs> like, I was a guy, too, just, like, witnessing that, like, in a post-Me Too world, witnessing the way, like, men talk to the women and just how fucking creepy it always is and just, like, how comfortable... I was at that time and we were as a society it seems and just like fucking writing that into our show super casually uh, of just like microaggressions and shit um lost dude (laughs) there's also a lot of like quarantine shit in lost you know and they're like isolated and they're alone and they're like trying to hold on to feelings of living a normal life and Desmond's in the hatch, you know. Spoiler. Hello. You've had you've had your chance to see it. <laughs> I've also been talking about it for a second, so if I spoiled it, I don't fucking feel bad about it at all. <laughs> I'm also playing a video game called Enter the Gungeon. It is very fun. I'm playing it on the Nintendo Switch. I played it with my sweet friend Massimo, who's a recurring character on this podcast. And my life as my friend. And uh played it with him a while ago and it's like it's pretty fun. It's almost like a it's I guess it feels like an arcade game to me. Uh in the best way. Where it's like a pretty simple sort of structure, dynamic. 
It's kind of, I guess, like a... I don't know if it qualifies as a dungeon crawler, but... Yeah, you're kind of going from room to room, and... I forget the name of what this thing is called, but... uh, The game is, like, making the map as you play it, and it's, like, different every time, and it's random. So, it keeps it really fun. Anyways, so you're trying to uh, clear the floor of all these, like... They call them the gun dead. It's a lot of gun puns in the game, and you're basically, like... You can choose one of four characters and you go in and you try to get through the whole dungeon of guns. The dungeon. And uh, I guess there's six chambers, as they say, in the game. And I put that together like <laughs> way too late into playing the game. I'm like, of course there's six chambers in the, like six levels, like six chambers of a gun, like, <laughs> anyways, I've only ever made it, to, I think I made it to the fourth chamber once, but I've, I really, I really make it to the third chamber. I'm most often dying on the first or second chamber. And that probably takes about like 10, 15 minutes, um, to die. <laughs> and I just like, I play this game a lot. It's so mindless for me now that I'm able to like, take in a podcast while I'm just kind of playing this mindless repetitive game it's like going from room to room and shooting these bullet monsters um and <laughs> it's just so funny because I really like the game and I'm like choosing to play the game and every time I play a game like you go through like little you know you're like enamored with it and obsessed with it and then like there's Sometimes there comes a point in me where I'm like playing the game and I don't really like it. <laughs> and I'm just sort of like wanting to beat it. And I'm just sort of like getting pissed off by it. And I'm just like, fuck this. <laughs> and it's just funny because I realized this today. Oh, because every time you die, you have to start back over at the beginning. Like you have to, like you go back to the, to the top and you have to start at chamber one and, and go back. In. So it's like, how far can you get? How deep can you get? So. Every single time I've played this game, I have lost, technically. <laughs> you know, I die every time. I've, I haven't su- successfully beat the game yet. And you got to not ever die to beat the game. Um, but it's still, like, it evolves in the sense of, like, you get new items that are become available. Anyways, it's funny because every time I die, I'm like, what the fuck? And it's basically like every 15 minutes for the last like two weeks, I've just been like, (laughs) I got killed again. And it's just like, dude, you've been killed hundreds of times in this game. You get killed every time. How are you so surprised? (laughs) So that's just like, I'm probably going to play it a little after this. Um, Anyways. Oh. I also wanted to talk about overnight oats. (laughs) A food trend that is showing up everywhere at our grocery stores and Instagram ads or whatever. I bought some the other day and it is insanely good, delicious. And it feels, feels like it's fucked up good, you know, where you're just like, what is this? They're selling me oatmeal for five bucks. Like this is, I could buy billion pounds of oats for one dollar you know and i can make it myself or whatever you know like i could buy the rolled oats and anyways as as oats and oat milk oat products on the rise that's it's great in a lot of ways i love it i'm actually 100 percent all in on it 
got a lot of oat products in my <laughs> fridge right now. But I, I do remember like seeing the overnight oats thing and being like, what the fuck is this shit? Like overnight oats? Like this is oatmeal. Like you, this is oat. You're trying to, you're trying to make fancy oatmeal, and I'm not. I'm no sucker. Then I bought some in the store, and let me tell you guys, this stuff is so very good. Don't know what voice that was. It's very, it's like sickeningly sweet, almost like it's almost that level of sweet. This, I, I guess, the brand I got was Mush, and I guess it's. I looked at like the sugars, and I'm just like, okay, this like doesn't seem insane for the way that it tastes. So, I. The jury's still out on overnight oats. Something I was like, this is annoyingly popular. And then I like tried it and I was like, oh, it's this is fucking unbelievably great. And I'm sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Sort of like, is this, are we going to find out this is like, like Diet Coke or something? Like it feels too good to be true. Anyways, that is all I have for you this week, friends. Just wanted to kind of check in, break the ice, re-enter the podcasting game in like a thoughtful way so um and obviously engage in the conversations that we're having uh that we should be having and that we want to continue to have um so anyways um gonna continue to speak on these things as i see relevant and gonna continue to share helpful resources particularly when it comes to anti-racism, anti-blackness, all of the above. Oh, one of which is that this Sunday at 11 a.m., Joanna Hardy is hosting. Uh, she's an incredible meditation teacher, former guest of the podcast. Um, she's hosting a POC plus allies uh, medit- virtual meditation. Uh, it's a sit It's like we'll practice in meditation and uh, she leads and then there there will usually be a speaker of some kind and then discussion and it's really powerful and it's really helpful for allies. It's on Zoom. Uh, If you go to meditationcoalition.org, again, I'll link that. Um, It's happening this Sunday at 11 a.m. over Zoom and it filled up last time, but I was able to uh, find a a different link on Facebook to you could watch the stream or like you can also, it's usually made available to just like view later. So I will keep you posted on that, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just good. You should go and, uh, make a donation to the black trans travel fund and, uh, bring more black voices into your life. And, uh, Watch Lost With Me. I don't want to watch it alone. Watch it with me. Okay. I love you. I'll see you guys real soon. Happy Happy